listening to Bikini Drive-In on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. Today, I'm very happy. Jill's back. Hi, Jill. Hello. How's it going? I'm well. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for, for recording the show with me. Well, thank you so much mm -hmm. for having me. It's so nice to have this project to work on yeah. in these weird times. It's nice time to have stuff to Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Bikini Drive-In's mission is to analyze foreign science fiction films through an intersectional feminist lens while combining elements of screen and media studies, arts criticism, and women and gender studies. Our knowledge and experience will hopefully provide you with access points to feminist theory, art history, and film critique while using foreign science fiction point genres as a site of discourse. Since we'll be discussing portrayals of horror and violence, content warning, listener discretion is advised, etc. Also, spoilers ahead. Today, we're discussing Ridley Scott's 1979 film, Alien. vessel receives an unknown transmission as a distress call. The crew is attacked by a mysterious life form and they soon realize that its life cycle has merely begun. Jill, what's your history with Alien? Ooh, I was trying to think and I really cannot recall the first time I viewed it, uh, but I do remember though learning more about Geekart, Geekart, and then <laughs> watching Kodorowsky's <laughs> Dune and having that context just really kind of expanding how I was watching mm -hmm. and thinking about the film. And I also have a cat named Jones, mm -hmm. the star. The star of the movie. <laughs> and I have since actually become friends with not one, but two amazing <laughs> women uh, with cats named Ripley. So after Ellen Ripley, actually. Mm -hmm. So I, I have found it to be a film that bonds. Yes. What about you? What was the first time, uh, or what's your history? Um, yeah, so Alien is one of those films that I can't remember the first time. I've just kind of always known about it and always have seen it, if that makes sense. Uh, and I've just seen it so many times, but I think my, my first experience with it, with Alien lore, was probably the diner scene from Spaceballs. Nice. I definitely saw that first. Um, but then, yeah, I've just seen it countless times. I feel like I've only ever seen it, though, like on like VHS or like on a shitty computer, but watching it recently... 
kind of like a nice version of it on a great screen. It was just like, it was so beautiful. It just looks like a painting. It's, it's gorgeous. Totally. It's so, so beautiful. I felt similarly like watching me like, oh yes, like it's dark, but there is still so much depth to it that yes. you miss when you're seeing a copy that has all this digital noise or. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so I just want to start off talking about sort of like isolation in film. Since we're all stuck at home, now seems like a perfect time to discuss isolation. Uh, so the majority of Alien takes place aboard the Nostromo, and obviously in space. Uh, Sarah and I last week discussed isol isolation and location uh, in film in relation to Night of the Living Dead. Um, do you have any favorite movies that take place in one location? Yeah, good question. Uh, I mean, in thinking of the world that Alien encapsulates mm -hmm. definitely 2001 a space odyssey is one of my favorite films other mm -hmm. ever ever and it uh contains qualities of isolation and entrapment and then going off of that i also really enjoyed moon with sam rockwell so very much kind of a hybrid of these space films mm -hmm. um and then also i can't help but think about rear window mm -hmm. as well it was also just really brilliantly captures this sense of tension and unease with its use of the one room set and then i also really like like clerks and the Breakfast Club. Yeah, I think that's such a good example. Yeah, yeah using this kind of single location is this fascinating little like quotidian and everyday kind of microcosm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've definitely talked about sort of films that take place in one location on the show before. So like Goodnight Mommy is just like in their like beautiful house. Black Christmas is just like in the sorority house. House of the Devil. Um, and then Dawn of the Dead is in a mall the whole time. Yeah. And it's such a strength uh, having that kind of like, I don't know what it is, if it's like a simplicity or mm -hmm. just like an anchoring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really, really impactful. For yeah, me. and then like even the location can act as, a, as another character. Totally, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, so uh, according to Julia Kuseva in Powers of Horror, the object refers to the human reaction to a threatened breakdown in meeting caused by the loss of a distinction between subject an object, an object, or between self and other. So the primary example is the quartz, which traumatically reminds us of our own sort of materiality. Um, so I have a quote here from Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers, Monstrosity, Patriarchy, and, the and Fear of the Female Power by Sadie Doyle, um, just talking about uh, Julie Kristeva. Um, the horror generated by the object is one of abomination of, and uncleanliness. The revulsion we feel for any substance that is both us and not us, blood, mucus, feces, Pus, um, and stuff like that. Uh, Kristeva roots this in the primal boundary blurring horror of the fact that we are once part of and dependent on our mothers. And I think that's interesting because the Nostromo or like the computer is called mother and it's sort of, she sort of like takes care of the crew and makes sure there's a lot there alive, but then, and they're so dependent on her, but at the same time, she's like an agent of the company that they work for. And yeah, we'll get more into that sort of like but yeah, also, like, sort of boundaries between the ster sterility of space versus, like, the physicality of the xenomorph. How it's just, like, covered in goop and viscera, and it's just, like, this such a physical creature that they're confronted in, confronted with, and they're, like, airtight and stuffy and sterile environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like that idea of, like, that confrontation and that mm -hmm. moment of, of being met with something so unexpected and so like subversive of their their daily tasks mm -hmm. as workers on the ship um also okay and think about like the goop so much goop. <laughs> it was really the goop <laughs> it's 
so interesting reading about like what they were using so like mm. obviously like tons of ky jelly for okay, yeah. the but then also like there was um shellfish for like the insides of the of the face, face grabber like, oh cool yeah because it looks like like an oyster totally yeah, yeah. there's like seafood and mm -hmm. shellfish in there mm -hmm. and then also yeah they were using like and it was like snake vertebrae on the costume and also mm -hmm. yeah snake vertebrae combined with like some sort of tube from like Rolls Royce cars mm -hmm. so even within the, the construction of it yeah. there's this like this merging of like yeah. organic natural with these mm -hmm. like other kind of like sterile or like these different kind of materials yeah, yeah. there's like mechanical things but can, then like yeah the use of the sea fish and the vertebrae it does sort of like anchor this creature in reality like it could possibly exist like in the real world totally, or it's like yeah. evolution of snakes and sea and seafood and all that stuff yeah 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 it's so just i love that like I, I don't know if it was the beginning of biomech but such a like <laughs> yeah for all that yeah cheesy. Uh, but yeah, Alien does such a brilliant job of blurring boundaries between gender and between uh, ideas of human and non-human, and also this like disruption of communication. So you talk about the mother, and mm -hmm. there is this like, interception um, that's really pertinent and adds to this sense of disturbance and lack of control. Mm -hmm. So like not being able to get to the true narrative um, from mother, like she's mm -hmm. quite, which is like yeah. let's unpack that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's also like the distorted SOS or warning from the ship. Um, that they go out to, which mm -hmm. initiates obviously the whole situation. Mm -hmm. And then there's the obstruction of the pecking order when mm -hmm. Ash... Ash, yes. <laughs> Who's the not... new science officer, which is like a whole other thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally. Mm -hmm. So telling. Uh, does not heed, yeah, regarding Ripley, Ellen Ripley's order to quarantine Kane after he gets oral invasion. Yeah. <laughs> right, by the alien. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, this idea that the company does not have your best interests. Yes. in mind so it leaves the viewer in this like suspended and tense state of of distress and alienation <laughs> how come the company sent us a goddamn robot all i can think of is they must have wanted the alien for the weapons division it's been protecting it right along parker will you plug it in um i don't know what because he may know how to kill it Ash, can you hear me? Ash! Yes, I can hear you. What was your special order? You read it. I thought it was clear. What was it? Bring back life form. Priority one. All other priorities rescinded. There's a damn company. What about our lives, you son of a bitch? I repeat, all other priorities are rescinded. How do we kill it, Ash? There's gotta be a way of killing it. How? How do we do it? 
You can't. That's bullshit. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. You admire it. I admire its purity. A survivor. And all clouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. Look, I've heard enough of this, and I'm asking you to pull the plug. Last word. What? I can't lie to you about your chances, but... You have my sympathies. So, in thinking of this abjection that you mentioned, and and blurring, uh, and the loss of distinction between subject and object, and self and other... I'm reminded of Lauren Berlant's idea of this like genre flail. Mm-hmm. So a genre flail is a mode uh, of crisis management that arises after an object or object world becomes disturbed in a way that intrudes on one's confidence about how to move in it. So it's like, it's this flail and this thrash which occurs when faced with a breakdown of sorts or a destabilization. Uh, and I feel like right now we're in a state of genre flail with how to navigate this new world of coronavirus and lockdowns and distance from people. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention having to unpack certain like, news narratives. Mm-hmm. It's really yeah. a flail. And the folks working on the Nostromo are faced with this also genre flail. They mm-hmm. have this foreign object that they can't kill because its secretions are toxic mm-hmm. <laughs> and the foundations of their task are whipped whipped out from under them when it's discovered that the mother and actually android have these different intentions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, I can't stop thinking about how we're currently in this moment of isolation and of like liminal mm-hmm. time. And in my most recent viewing of Alien for this discussion, I found myself focusing a lot on the textures of air in the film. Mm-hmm. Probably thinking a lot about being stuck in my own apartment. <laughs> like in your own stink. My own stank. Like I literally had to change the shirt right before because I was like sweating so much. Like that was like air pressure. I'm thinking a lot about anyway. Yeah. <laughs> for stillness and silence, which really builds tension. Tension. <laughs> but also this really delightful interception of this still air. So again, this interception or disruption, like how the use of haze and cloud mm-hmm. and sooty steam and fog and murk are um, are used. And then there's these lights and lasers and strobes that work so effectively to cut through the air and provide really this like thick sense of texture mm-hmm. and confined space and fear and the unknown and unease. And I'm also having this really big texture moment as I've been reading <laughs> some of Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, uh, who's a brilliant queer theorist. She's so cool. Uh, so she's looking at textual perception and how it involves looking at how an object was sedimented, extruded, laminated, granulated, polished, stressed, felt, felted, fluffed up, just like what goes into these materials and these mm. objects. So she also discusses how the sense of touch makes nonsense out of any dualistic understanding of agency and passivity. Mm. Like, to touch something is also to reach out. Like, there's this kind of, like, right. okay. messiness about mm. that interaction, which is really interesting. And so she then brings forth the idea of texture, two Xs, 
which is the kind of texture that is dense with offered information about how substantively, historically, materially, it came into being. So it's looking at this palimpsestic nature of an object or of a being or of a texture. Um, but then it also alludes to the fact that there's texture which blocks information, you know, which like erases its, its own history. Mm. So I think about this a lot in terms of the alien costume and when it was more translucent and you could see the human skull and the details of the mm. snake vertebrae. But then it appeared too phallic, I guess, in their test shots, in their okay. shots. Um, which is also very funny because it's like, okay, this film is like literally chalk full of like genital junk. Yeah. But then this one, uh, I mean, what would be a very large phallus is like, that's the limit. Yeah, <laughs> too <is> much. <laughs> but then, yeah, so they ended up painting it this like smooth, glossy, thick black, mm-hmm. which really blocks the humanness underneath. And mm-hmm. it makes me really, I just find that to be such an interesting insight into that alien that's the normal creature mm-hmm. is humanness that is now being blocked by this yes. like shield. Yeah. Um, because of something being too phallic, because of something more sexually related. Like that could be, yeah. That's... Yeah, it's like too human, too biological. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. That's interesting. Um, so yeah, I just want to talk a little bit about like the id, the ego, and the superego. So according to Freud's model of the psyche, the id is the primitive and instinctual part of the mind that contains sexual and aggressive drives and hidden memories. Superego operates as a moral conscious, and the ego is a realistic part that mediates between the desires of the id and the superego. So I sort of broke this film down as like the xenomorph represents the id, as it is the disorganized part of the personality structure that contains a human's, human's basic instinctual drives. It is the only component of personality that is present from birth. So it is seen that as soon as the xenomorph is born from Cain's chest, it is just, it's all drive, it's all... Like, uh, even as Ash describes it as he's pure, he's pure hostility, pure sexual drive. It's all, yeah, just id. Um, and then in this sense, the crew as a super ego, where there's the, they're the moral beings and moral creatures in this psyche, in the, in the ship. And then Ash, and by extension the company, represent the ego. So this is the needs of reality. In this case, in this case, Ash and the company are navigating and manipulating desires of the id and morality of the superego. So they want to harness the id of the xenomorph for warfare, for, for their war division or whatever, while at the same time manipulating the morality, basically like assuming that the crew is going to answer that, that, um, that call. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the distress call at the beginning of the film. Yeah. Um, and then that sort of leads into, like, how this film... Yes, there was the alien, which is, like, the main monster. But the same at the same time, it's also a story about, like, the exploitation of the working-class crew by the company, which is later named the Weyland yutani Corporation in Aliens. So, yeah, I think it is pretty interesting how, like, they're in space, they work for this big company. It's supposed to be, like, in a lot of, like, sci-fi film spaces, like this very grand sort of operation. Whereas here it's like, it's very banal. Like they're just kind of sort of like bickering about money and they're, well, I don't know. This is really interesting. Sort yeah, of like dynamic. It, it, I really, yeah. I also appreciate that they made it this like, like a blue collar space. Like it's yeah, just totally. like, they're just, working, they're just doing these jobs and even like how, um, Oh, Harry Dean Stanton, whatever yes. his character's name. Brett. Yeah. Oh, and how Harry Parker, I know, like, Ruben mentioned, like, there's a, he was reminded of, like, Apocalypse Now and mm. how 
So like there is something about like how their personalities come through in their costume design. Like there's something different, but then how they mm. are the ones mostly yeah like um, bickering over shares as you say and, and like, doing they're, repairs like, the... and doing repairs yeah. on the ship and stuff, right? Yeah, and they're doing the work mm. and yeah something about how also I feel like the costume design there's some sort of reflection of the humanness mm -hmm. of the doing and yeah. Uh, yeah yeah and I yeah I so appreciate that space not being yeah this like clean space clean like, sort no. of like and it is for the it is for these blue collar workers it's not like this elitist space really it is a space where like yeah these workers are being exploited yeah, so I found on this, just this past viewing, um, I was surprised by, like, the elements of found footage, especially when they first, when they're first, like, answering the distress call and they go to the planetoid, and you, when you first see the spaceship, like, the alien spaceship, it's, that's basically, that's a found footage film, because it's from the perspective of their helmets, right? And then you hear these voice recordings, it's just, like, such a cool, like, Know, like the first found footage film, maybe I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's just inserted in this really simple way. Yeah, yeah. no, I know. I was really struck by that as well. Mm, yeah, um, yeah, so interesting. And then even it doesn't. Yeah, because I guess that's the only instance that it happens in. But there is other moments. Feel close to the end when Ellen Ripley's rushing through, mm. and we get her perspective again. It's not found footage, but a similar kind of it's like repeating that same kind of like point of view yeah and that that itself is such a like an isolated claustrophobic point of view at the same time yeah it's really cool and also yeah this movie has been compared to a slasher a lot slasher in space which i think is like sort of a cool framework to sort of compare it to yeah um oh yeah i also wanted to talk about the score by jerry goldsmith i think it's like such a wonderful like tension between these very sort of loud, overwhelming moments, and then complete silence. Because like, as soon as when Kane first discovers the eggs, it's totally silent. And then in, in like these very tense moments, and then when it's on his face, it's just like, and even like the chest burster scene, which is probably like maybe like one of the most like intense and tense points of the film. Like the, yeah, it's just like it's totally quiet. Anything sort of like adding that adds a whole other texture to this sort of like sterile, stuffy smoky space that they're in oh yeah yeah, yeah. silence and it is so beautiful that's my yeah. like what i feel and because of it being an isolated environment just in thinking of other space films occurring on these these little ships mm -hmm. but like how silence is really the heaviness mm -hmm. silence in space moments is like oh it's just so beautiful Okay, yeah, so um, that's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, and thank you, Jill. Thanks so much for recording with me today. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, yeah, also, P.S., Jill's birthday today. Happy birthday. Oh, <laughs> yeah, this is such a great movie to, to talk about. So. Oh, it made my day. Yeah. So nice. Yeah. Perfect. Um, perfect. perfect. Um, yeah, I just wanted to mention, um, I did an interview with Stylist Magazine for the CKU Who column. Um, so, yeah, I just did an interview with Mark Teague, and you can read it on ckuw.ca slash stylus. And yeah, so it's a fun interview. Just talking about the radio.
It was very fun. Congratulations on the interview, Olivia. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, yeah, and you can listen to Bikini Drive-In every Sunday at 4.30 on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. Okay, bye. W95.9 FM in Winnipeg. Unleash your enthusiasm for something special.